This letter, by the way, is one letter that uh, perhaps ought not to be called by the title that we usually uh, name it. Well, we don't know who this letter was written to, really. Uh, it's true that uh, among the recipients of this letter were undoubtedly the Christians in the city of Ephesus, but not only them. In fact, many of the manuscripts of this letter from the Gre- that, uh, of the Greek originals <clears throat> contain uh, in verse... Uh, uh, let's see... In in verse 1, which in your King James Version, I think, says to the saints at Ephesus, who are also faithful in Christ Jesus, uh, it contains just a blank, just a line, to be filled in, evidently, by whoever else was to be the next recipient of this letter. And that's why the Revised Standard Version has left that out. And in our version, it does not say to the saints at Ephesus, but just simply to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Jesus. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, there's a reference also to a letter that he wrote to the Laodiceans. And uh, we don't have in our Bible a letter called the Epistle of Paul to the Laodiceans, but many have felt that it is the same letter that we call the Epistle to the Ephesians. And the reason for that is because in the in the uh, revelation of John, the last book of the Bible, it begins, you remember, with seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. And the first of these churches is Ephesus, and the last of them is Laodicea. And these cities were grouped in a rather rough circle in Asia Minor, and uh, it was uh, evidently the custom for whoever wrote to one of the churches to have the letter sent on to each church in turn. So that Paul, writing to the churches of Asia, would begin his letter with the church of Ephesus, and next the church of Sardis, and so on, all around the circle, until they came at last to the church of the Laodiceans. And this, therefore, may be the explanation for what otherwise looks like a lost letter, the Apostle Paul, the letter to the Laodiceans. At any rate, this letter sets forth in a marvelous way a truth that, No other section of the New Testament describes so completely the nature of the body of Christ. As I suggested in the panorama of Scripture that we've been working on, uh, this letter forms the first of of a group of epistles that together express what is involved in the phrase, you in Christ. We saw that the first four letters of the New Testament, Romans, Corinthians, 1st and 2nd, and Galatians, are the development of the little phrase, Christ in you. It teaches us, these letters teach us what the indwelling life of Christ is intended to do. But these Epistles, beginning with the church at Ephesus, are the way we learn and, and understand what it means for us to be in Christ and to share together the body life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the great theme, then, of this letter, the, uh, the believer in Christ, or the church, the nature of the church. And uh, verse 3 of the first chapter is, in many ways, the key to this letter. We read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. That's the key. 
in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, there are many who take that phrase, the heavenly places, which appears several times in this letter, as a reference to heaven. But if you read this as uh, referring to heaven after we die, you'll miss the whole import of this letter. Because it's not talking about going to heaven someday, although that's in this letter. It's talking primarily about the life you live right now. And the heavenly places are not off on some distant reach of space or some other planet or some other star. But the heavenly places are simply the realm of invisible reality in which the, the, the Christian now lives. That contact with God and also that conflict with the devil in which we are all engaged daily. You'll see that uh, God, uh, the, the heavenly places are the seat of Christ's power and glory. Look in verse 2, chapter 2, uh, verse uh, uh, 6, where we're told, He raised us up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But in chapter 3, we learn that this is the headquarters of the principalities and powers. In verse uh, 10, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And the conflict that occurs there is mentioned in uh, verse, uh, in chapter 6, verse 12. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, you see, that hasn't any reference at all to heaven. That means earth, but the invisible realm of earth. Not what you can see or touch or taste or feel, but that spiritual kingdom which surrounds us on all sides and which constantly influences us and affects us, whether for good or evil, depending upon our uh, willful choice and relationship to these invisible powers. Those are the heavenly places. Now, in that realm in which every one of us live, the apostle declares that God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That is, he's given us all that it takes to live in this present relationship. Peter, you know, says <clears throat> the same thing. In his second letter, he says, by his divine power, he has granted to us uh, what, uh, all, that all that pertains to life and to godliness. And that means that when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord, you have already received all that God ever intends to give you. Isn't that remarkable? The weakest believer holds in his hands all that is ever possessed by the mightiest saint of God. We already have it because we have Christ. And in him is every spiritual blessing and all that pertains to life and godliness already given to us. So that we have what it takes to live life as God intended it. And therefore, any failure, you see, is not because God hasn't given it to us, but because we haven't taken what he's given. We haven't appropriated what is already ours. 
This, of course, eliminates any need for a second blessing, or a third, or a fourth, or a four hundredth, or a five thousandth. <laughs> it's all there. And there will be blessing after blessing after blessing as you take these one by one, moment by moment. And that's what the import of the hymn was that we were singing. Jesus, I am resting, resting. Every moment receiving from him all that he is. Resting in his grace, resting in his power, resting in his life. Now, that's, that's the theme of the epistle to the Ephesians. But in this letter, the apostle spells out for us with, fi- with uh, uh, five remarkable figures, six remarkable figures actually, what this means. And here we learn, by the use of these uh, wonderful figures of speech, what the church is. It's true that this is the letter about the church, about the whole body of Christ. But I find that that makes it, that when you, when you approach this from that angle, it makes it difficult for people to grasp this truth. Because we all have the tendency to think of ourselves as somewhat r- remote from the church. I have people come up to me every now and then and say, well, the church ought to do so-and-so. And I say, well, you're the church, go to it. <laughs> and it always seems to strike them with a degree of, uh, of amazement that it's true. They are the church. Someone said to me not long ago, the church ought to be more friendly. Well, I said, all right, you and I are the church, let's be more friendly. You see, the church is people. And every believer is a member of the body of Christ, the church. So I would prefer to go through this letter using not the word the church, but the Christian. Because every believer is a uh, microscopic uh, reproduction of what the whole church is. So if we understand that God lives within the church, that means he also lives within each believer. That's why in the letter to the Corinthians, the apostle uses both of those phrases, both of those terms. He says, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you? And then in another place, he says, if any man defile the temple of God, he shall be destroyed. And there he's referring to the whole body of Christ. But each one of us, as a believer in Jesus Christ, is a microcosm. Of the, uh, of the whole body. Therefore, we can go through this epistle and say uh, that not that the church is these things, but that each of us individually is. Now, I want you to see these uh, figures of speech that are used because they're very uh, helpful and beautiful. First, in chapter 1, the church is a body. You'll notice that the chapter concludes with that very, uh, that very uh, statement. Uh, verse 22, He has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And this whole chapter, first chapter, is devoted to the wonder and the amazement that we who are normal, ordinary sin-possessed human beings should be called by God in a most amazing way, reaching back even to before the foundation of the earth, to become members of that body. 
and the process by which this occurs. It's a tremendous declaration. The Apostle Paul never got over his amazement that he, bow-legged, bald-headed, despised by many, regarded with contempt in many circles, was nevertheless a member of the body of Jesus Christ and was called of God before the foundation of the earth and given these tremendous blessings so that he was equipped with everything that life could demand of him. Now that's the body of Christ. And what's the purpose of a body? Well, it says in this verse, it's the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, it's the expression of the head. That's what your body is for, isn't it? It's intended to express and perform the desires of the head. The only time that a human body does not do that is when some uh, secondary nervous center is artificially stimulated, uh, like the knee-jerk reflex. You know, if you hit your knee with a hammer in the right place, it'll kick up in the air without you being uh, aware of it or even willing it. Even if you choose not to will it, it will still do that. And I sometimes wonder if some of the activity of the church can't be ascribed to that kind of a thing. Maybe that's why the world thinks we're all a bunch of jerks. (laughs) At any rate, uh, this is the function of the body, isn't it? It's intended to be the expression, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What a mighty sentence that is. Do you ever think of yourself that way? Do you ever dare to think of yourself as the way God thinks of you? As a body to be wholly filled and flooded with God himself. Isn't that mighty? Well, that's the church in in chapter 1. In chapter 2, you have the church as a temple. And again, it's toward the close of this chapter that this is given to us. In verse 21, we read, In whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built into it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. There's a holy temple. You know, one of the greatest things that's taking place in the world today is this building that God is erecting through the ages. Uh, When all the uh, claptrap of human endeavor has crumbled into dust, All the institutions and organizations that we've built have been long forgotten. The church, the body, the temple which God is erecting will be the central focus of attention through all eternity. That's what he's saying. And he's building it now using human building blocks, putting uh, human beings into this temple where he wants them, shaping them up, edging them and sandpapering them and getting them all prepared and putting them into place just as he wants them. Why? What's the purpose? What's your purpose? And the purpose of the whole temple together? Well, as he says, to be the home of God, to be the dwelling place of God. I think that envisions and includes everything that we, that we understand by the use of home. The other day, my, uh, the other, a few weeks ago, my family and I came back from a long trip. And as soon as we got home, 
we stretched out and took off our coats and made ourselves at home and said, oh, it's great to be home. Now, what is home? Uh, what, what, is it to, what does it do to us that makes us act that way? Makes us relax, makes us be ourselves at home. It doesn't mean that when we're away from home, we're something else, but we're always somewhat restrained a bit. But at home, we can be all that we want to be. Just relax and be yourself. Now, that's what God is building the church for, that it might be the place where he can be what he wants to be. In you. In you. God can fully relax and be all that he is in you. That's why he's building you, calling you. Well, look at the next one. The fourth, the third chapter includes a different figure. Here we learn that the church is a mystery, a sacred secret. Look at verse 9, or beginning with verse 8. Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things, that, and here comes the mystery now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. There are wonderful things in that. This means that God has had some secret plans at work through centuries that he's never unfolded to anybody. But he's had a goal in mind and a purpose in mind that he intends to fulfill. And the instrument by which he's going to do it is the church. And it's something we can never fully grasp. But it involves the education of the whole universe. That's what he says here, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? That that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom, the multitudinous aspects and facets of God's wisdom might now be made known to all the principalities and powers that inhabit the heavenly places, the invisible realm of uh, reality, anywhere and everywhere in all ages. That's the purpose of a mystery, the education of the universe. Now in chapter 4, the apostle uses still another figure. And in verse, uh, you'll find it given in verse 7. Here he says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 27. He says, I'm reading this wrong. It's verse uh, 24. Uh, and put on, he says, the new man, the new nature, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The church is a new man, because every Christian in it is a new man. You know how this links with uh, Paul's word in First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And the present creation, which began back in the beginning that we talked about this morning, it has grown old long ago and is passing away. And all the world and all its wealth and all its wisdom belongs to that. 
But gradually, through the course of centuries, God has been building up a new generation, a new race of beings, a new kind of man the world has never seen before. Better even than Adam. For if you check the fifth chapter of Romans, you'll learn that all that we lost in Adam, we gain back in Christ and much more. Much more. So that here's a race of beings such as the world has never dreamed of before. And you remember in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says the whole creation is standing on tiptoe. That's the word he uses. Craning its neck, waiting to see the manifestation of the sons of God. The day of the unveiling of this new creation. Well, now that's being made right now. And you're invited to put on this new man, moment by moment, day by day, in order that you might meet the pressures and the problems of life as it's lived in the world today. That's what the church is here for. The church is a new man. And the purpose of this new man is to exercise a ministry. You'll notice in this same chapter, in verse uh, 7, we read, But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And this new man, is each of us, is given a gift that we never had before we became a Christian. And our job, our reason for existence, the reason Jesus Christ put us here on earth and leaves us here, is that we might discover and exercise that gift. I don't know anything more important than this. The reason why the church has failed and faltered and lagged and lost is because Christians have lost this great truth that each one receives directly from the Lord. That includes the youngest to the oldest of us who know Jesus Christ. The risen Lord has given to you a gift. Just as he gave the talents to the man in the parable. And he says, occupy till I come. And when he comes back, his judgment will be on the basis of what did you do with the gift that I gave you. That's the exercise of the new man. Now chapter 5 includes still a different figure. In chapter 5, in verse 27, we learn that the church is a bride. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in verse 31, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is a great mystery, and I take it to mean Christ and the church. The church is a bride. And it's to be a bride uh, for the enjoyment of the bridegroom. He says his intention in building the church as a bride, calling the church as a bride, is that he might present it to himself. Isn't that what every bridegroom desires? That his bride shall be his. While they're engaged, you know, uh, or even during their early days of courtship, she may go out with some other fellows. But when they're engaged, she's promised to be his. 
And uh, they're both waiting for the day when that can be realized. And then the day comes when they stand at last before the marriage altar and they promise one another to love and honor and cherish one another till death shall they part. And then they become each other's. She becomes his. He becomes her. For the enjoyment of each other throughout their lifetime together. Now that's the picture of the church. The Christian is to be the bride of Christ for his enjoyment. You ever think of yourself that way? You know that helped to revolutionize my own devotional life. When it dawned upon me that the Lord Jesus was looking forward to our time together. And that if I missed it, he was disappointed. And that I was not only receiving from him, but he was receiving from me. And he longed for it and yearned for it. And when I uh, met with the Lord after that, it was with a new sense that here was one who delighted in this time of fellowship together. And finally, the last figure is, the church is a soldier. You have that in verse uh, chapter 6, verse 13. We've read this already. Uh, Take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And what's the purpose of a soldier? To fight battles. That's what God's doing now. And he's given us the great privilege of being the battlefield upon upon which his great victories are won. You know, that's the essence of the story of the book of Job. Here was this dear man who uh, had a series of tragedies that struck without warning one day. All in one day he lost his, his possessions one by one. And then finally all his family except his wife. And uh, he didn't understand what was happening. But as you read that book you can see what was happening. That God had chosen this man to be the the battlefield in which the conflict with Satan will be, would be fought out. And God would bring a great victory to pass through the life of that man. But he couldn't tell him about it in advance. That would have spoiled it. The man had to be what he ought to have been without knowing what was taking place. And you remember how God allowed Satan to go to the, uh, to the utmost limit in afflicting his physical body. And uh, his mind was troubled as well. And he couldn't understand what was happening. But when the battle was over, God greatly blessed Job and used him mightily and taught the people of God a lesson ever since that the trials and the difficulties that you go through are not always for yourself alone, but they're the means by which God wins mighty victories against these unseen powers. And we're called to be these soldiers who learn how to fight Remember how John writes to his, uh, to his dear Christians and he calls them little children. And he says, I write unto you young men because you are strong and have overcome the, the, the wicked one by the word of God. You've learned how to fight, how to move out, how to uh, throw off the, the uh, confusing uh, restraints of the world. How not to be conformed to the age in which you live, but to move against the tide, swim against the current. And God was greatly glorified in that. 
I love the book of Daniel. We've been reading it at home in our family circle lately. And I love that because there's the story of a teenager who was a prisoner in a, in a foreign land, exposed to a pagan environment, who had to fight the battle through day by day and count upon the faithfulness of God to keep him when everything was against him, time after time after time. And all the pressures that were brought to bear upon him were almost incredible. But again and again, David and his, or Daniel and his friends met that test and won those battles and carried on through. And you remember that toward the close of the book, Daniel was sent a visitor. The angel Michael was sent to him. And he told him some great things, tremendous things. Daniel was allowed to see clear down the stream of time beyond our own day. And the uh, and yet when the angel first appeared to him, Daniel was greatly troubled. And he fell upon his face. His knees shook. He was fearful and afraid of this holy visitor. But the angel said to him, Fear not, Daniel, for thou art a man greatly beloved. Why? Well, because he was a faithful soldier. And this is the privilege that God is calling us to in this day of unrest and distress in earth. God's calling us to be soldiers, to walk in the steps of those who have won the battle before us and been faithful unto death if necessary. This is the privilege of those who are called, equipped with every spiritual blessing in order that they might be a body, a temple, a bride, a mystery, a new man, and a soldier for Jesus Christ. What a calling. And what's the exhortation then of this letter? Well, it's just in one verse. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, says Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, writing this out of a prison relationship, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Don't lose sight of what God is doing. The world can't see it. They have no idea this is taking place. But you can see it. And don't lose heart. Let's bow together in prayer. Thank you, our Father, for this reminder from the pen of this faithful apostle of the character of the world in which we live and the nature of the battle which we fight and the glory of the calling which we have. We ask that you will make us faithful, faithful unto the end, faithful unto death if need be, that all the pressures may be met by the answering pressure of the Lord Jesus himself within, the Son of God who dwells within us, who makes his home in our hearts. What a precious fellowship this is. Make us to be faithful to it in Christ's name. Amen.